0: Welcome back to Hashtag Single with Jeanette Bonner. I am not a relationship expert or sex therapist. I'm just a regular New York City woman navigating the world as a single, independent feminist. Hashtag Single is about having honest conversations with other singles in today's device-obsessed culture. So I hope you'll join me on this interesting, challenging, and complex journey as we navigate the ins and outs of singledom. Thank you so much for coming back to Hashtag Single With Me, Jeanette, your host. I hope you all had a superb week last week and are nice and rested because we've got a fierce feminist episode for you this month with another author, Lizzie Skernick. Lizzie, I'm so excited to have you on Hashtag Single With Me today. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, it's great that we have finally been able to do this. I'm very excited. We're here.
0: We're we're doing it. I was like, not even in person, but (laughs) we made it happen. We're dressed. Maybe. I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, I'm going to read a little bio that I compiled from a bunch of different sources. So I I forgot the internet's sake worth of of accuracy, but um, feel free to correct anything that I get wrong. Okay. Uh, Lizzie Skernick is a writer, columnist, critic, and editor, as well as an author of Shelf Discovery, the teen classics will never stop reading, a meditation on favorite YA novels launched from her regular feature column, fine lines for jezebel.com and that should be a word a language lover's guide to choreogasms poverty brattling and 250 other much-needed terms for the modern world <laughs> also the editor-in-chief of lizzie skernick books an imprint that brings back ya classics for teen lit fans and has written 10 books for teens her wordsmithing has been featured in entertainment weekly slate atlantic monthly on npr's weekend edition and more she is a frequent contributor to the New York Times, NPR, L, Jezebel, and many other publications. And she currently teaches at NYU and lives in Jersey City, New Jersey. That is yes. all... Yes. How's that?
1: All, anything you want to add? I, I, it was all good. All correct. Any, anything that was... <laughs> I'm like, how much more could
0: there be that's... I was
1: <laughs> I'm saying anything that was wrong, I'm just going to use that from now on. Great. I'm fantastic. i like to change it. I yeah. like <laughs> um,
0: So obviously having you on here today is a small bit of a departure for hashtag single. This podcast is uh, focusing mainly around singleness and independence, but it's also about female empowerment in the modern world. And you recently published a new book called Pretty Bitches. And actually, I want to read the full title here because that will truly explain why you're here with us. Uh, Pretty Bitches semicolon on being called crazy, angry, bossy, frumpy, feisty, and all the other words that are used to undermine women. First of all, I am in love with this book, and I want to tell you how um, it came into my life, if I may. Yes, I would Um, love to hear it. Obviously, like there's a ton of intersection with um, what we talk about on the podcast, some common themes and the essays of this book. So while we're not necessarily covering singleness, I do think that the themes that your female authors cover in your book are themes that we find ourselves talking about. So my friend Kat lives in Jersey City. And she just happened to be on Facebook in that Buy Nothing Facebook group and saw that you were giving away uh, copies of your book. And she was like, oh, my gosh, this sounds exactly like something Jeanette would love. And she immediately kind of responded and was like, yes, we would like some books. So she went over and she got one for herself and for me and gave it to me as like a little holiday gift. I went over to her place for New Year's Eve. So... Is this just, just totally random? That's awesome! Connection. Uh, that is how your book came into my oh, life. Oh, that's I don't amazing! Know <laughs> I,
1: had, I had no idea it had such a fun story. Yes, I I love buy nothing. I am always there, either giving or getting, and I'm so excited that that's how you got the book. <laughs> Is that
0: funny? And But how great though like, I love that. I mean, yeah, I see people giving away like old pairs of shoes and like Tupperware they don't need. But I love that an author would actually use that as a forum to get their book out to a different audience in a different demographic. I thought that was really clever. Oh,
1: yeah. It and, worked. Yeah. And I, well, also my, you know, my publisher, I didn't want to get the assistant in trouble. And I feel like now it's been so long that that's not going to happen. But they somehow... They sent me forty extra copies that that were the copies they were then supposed to send reviewers, and then they did send the forty <laughs> to reviewers. But that okay, okay. means like forty copies like went unsold. But That's then bad. and and I yeah and I, which is oh, whatever. And then it's like books don't sell anyway. And then I was gonna give them to Word, um, or and then a, somebody one of my friends suggested doing it on that, and I actually didn't think anyone would be interested like I was sort of like oh I'll put them there and then I'll give the rest to word and actually people took so many and somebody had already taken like 30 so it was actually great Whoa. to see that the book was interesting to people I was like it's so sad that it came out like the day covid launched so we'll never we'll never know what would have happened to it in a non covid world but definitely it was it was thrilling i mean I some people might not know how these buy nothing sites work, but people put in the comments you know, I'd love it, I'd love to be considered, and like there were a billion comments right away, oh my and, god,
0: because yeah, like i I don't think people give away new books. Like I think that's, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of like, I don't need your old crusty mirror, but I love that someone's like an author, a local author is giving away their work for free to their community. Yes, Like that's, that's genius to me. Oh, you should absolutely do that. I think that, so that was really cool. And, um, you know, I mean, you're right. The book world is, uh, is really challenging because if people are not reading books, I'm a avid book reader like actual book not kindle but like you know how do we all it's so overwhelming how do you find out about books unless they're um getting the majority of of reviews and major publications talking about them so uh, i i think it's it's really neat to to find out about a, a a little local independent book in a local independent way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I never thought yeah, about that. Of but like it was- waiting for the New York Times review, I was like, oh, this is so cool. And that's what gave me the courage to reach out to you. You know, if I'd picked up your book at a major... Outlet, if I picked it up at at Barnes Noble, I think I would have been a little like, oh my God, she's never going to answer my email. Like, I'm going to get stuck in publicist world and they're going to be like, who are you? (laughs) You But I was like, she's like a local lady. Totally (laughs) a local lady. She gives stuff away on Facebook. I'm so glad we connected. So, shout out to Kat making that happen. Yes. Shout out. so before we dive into the book, let's start at the top, because um, I'm, I'm just, I'd just love to know more about you and your work and what drives you. And it seems like your writing career more or less started from a, dare I say, obsession with YA fiction. <laughs> is that true? Well, it's true.
1: It's weird. I actually, so the writing career is so, is such a weird journey, but like it actually started because I was I was in the Johns Hopkins program for poetry at the Hopkins, Brand, yeah and and I have my masters in poetry and I have published a book of poetry but at the same time I started blogging about books and at the time the literary world really was like kind of a closed system and even though I actually did have connections and I did have it was like I didn't quite fit into what was happening narratively then, and it was in the very mm. early days of blogging, I mean this was like 2000, 2001, and so I started a literary blog, because um, I like read about blogs, and I was like, what are these weird, <laughs> I mean it's literally that early, and I remember yeah. when I first tried to read a blog, like, I couldn't even understand how it worked, it's like we can't like we going back to that era is so strange but it was like it, it was is literally a different presentation of information it's like yeah. oh okay these are posts and this is how you talk and at the time there just weren't that many and but it, not many literary blogs and so I started one and I started talking to all the other bloggers and those were, the that literary group were the people that sort of became my friends. And then totally, you know, not predictably to us, which is so weird, but you know, we were all like in jobs we hated blogging anonymously. And then all of a sudden, the literary world was like, oh, you just said this mean thing about us. Do you want to write for us? And I, I promise you, well, how they, weird. it's so weird. And this is not what we were shooting for. But I think in a way, like we were probably people who had sort of tried to come in through the traditional ways. And it just wasn't how we talked and it wasn't how we did anything and it just wasn't how our brains worked um, and so I began doing that and then I began doing a lot of book reviews and like cultural criticism and essay writing and you know book journalism and and I had this blog at the same time and then um, a lot of my friends who were bloggers went on to become it. Like it was so early that like four of them went on to become editors at Gawker, which I guess is now defunct. Oh, interesting. Like who's going to know? Yeah, and it's like now that sounds old. That was <laughs> no, like really... just, for those of you listeners who are young, that was Google Gawker. <laughs> Google Gawker, and it's like that was Twitter if Twitter had just one person, and that one person <laughs> yes. was incredibly brilliant. And so, and it was literally the first editor of Gawker, Elizabeth Fires, and I just remember that. And so, um, and so Jezebel, which is the site where I first did all my writing about teen stuff, hadn't launched yet. And, you know, Jezebel was then part of the Gawker empire, and my the, my friend introduced me to Anna Holmes, who was the... Incoming editor of this new site, Jezebel, and she was like, I'd like to do a column about all the vintage YA we read as kids. And I was like, that's what I was going to say to you at this wonderful oh meal that we're having as we discuss what to do in like 1988 or whatever. <laughs> this seems so long ago now. Like, um, and, uh, and so that's how that column started. And, that was really basically a memoir I wrote through books. It was something my publisher fucking insisted on calling a memoir, and I was like, mm. "I know you're doing this because memoirs sell better, and it's not really a memoir, but okay." And I was like, "I guess it is kind of a memoir, but still." Um, and so then I did that, and then um, that book was sort of led to Lizzie Skernick books, where I got a chance to reprint a lot of those old classics, uh, which was amazing. Um, And then that somehow led to a column where I made up words for the New York Times magazine and like lately what I've been doing is a lot, this is actually a lot of memoir, which which was not the thing I was doing before. And now currently I'm working on a a book about the mystery of my great grandfather's death. And so I've been... I've been researching my great-grandfather and so that's what I'm writing right now. So I've just, I don't know why, I guess I get bored with genres. And
0: if <laughs> no, but do you know what, you know what it makes me think of? I'm sure you know this quote, like Elizabeth Gilbert, she, uh, in Big Magic, she always said like, follow your love and your curiosity so that you, yes. Your and that's what your path sounds like to me and honestly a little bit of my path too it's never like I'm a prescribed person that follows this one grooved path but you're just sort of like okay well I did that project and like what am I curious about next right and your your career evolves kind of organically but you're never not true to yourself
1: oh totally it's funny because it's like I was I was trying to I've been trying to finish this novel for a long time like there's a a long story short my original publisher didn't want pretty bitches they kept wanting a book i couldn't write and i was just like i don't know why you keep asking for this linguistics book i'm not a linguist that can't be our second book like (laughs) i like you need to find another writer or allow me to do the book so we we had to like actually switch publishers um to pub for you know in order to do pretty bitches and all the meanwhile which is like really common you know i actually felt very lucky because by the time we finally like you know pulled out of this like what had become just this agonizing relationship with this publisher where I kept giving them uh, proposals and they kept being like, eh, this is sort of true, and I was like, okay, you know what, I've fucking written, like, like I've written 80,000 words for you at this point like, in proposals, like you know, shit or get off the pot, and finally Right, like, I what was, more do you need? What more yeah. do you need? And I was like, okay, I'm getting off this pot, but- <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, but it's like, I'm pushing you off the pot, but I'm gonna <laughs> take a shit, but like, meanwhile I was in kind of book jail because I couldn't write another book while I was ostensibly working out, working through this book contract. So it was like those uh, yeah. old musicians get stuck in these record contracts and then they're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know. It was basically like that. It was horrible. And But I feel so lucky because by the time I got Pretty Bitches to a new publisher, I was like exhausted and I was like, you know what, I'm going to do the best book I can, but and I'm, but you know, I just, I really just have to get this book done, you know, and put it behind me. Like it's actually been kind of a traumatic experience and I, you mm. know, but then when, you know, I asked many, many writers I admire to do it, um, the writers I admire most, also some writers asked to be in it when they heard about it, which was amazing. Like probably had like five writers write and be like, I want to be in this book. And I was like, great, fine. Um, and people just turned in these like barn burner essays Yeah. where I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. And every time I read an essay about the word someone was talking about and what it had done to them and then what they had done about it, like this word that they had been called, it was really revolutionary and not to sound like woo woo, but I felt very healed by all the essays. Yeah. I was, And a lot of the writers said that too. They were like, you know what? I fucking feel better. I feel like I left this fucking word behind me now and I feel better. And so I feel like it's not that common for you to have like a really painful, horrible thing that you just get out of the way, turn into an amazing thing that you're so proud is in the world. So I just feel very lucky about um, Pretty Bitches and what all the writers did. And- it's
0: really, it's really an incredible collection. And yeah. I think like, the, to me, it felt like building blocks. Like you have, you had, like you said, all this power of of people coming together and being like how this word has pained me in our society and this world broke me or, or broke me down and built me back up again. Yeah. But I'm curious, like, Where did it come from initially? I mean, did it, I was reading the chapter called Shrill and obviously all I could think about was our uh, election. Yeah, with Hillary Clinton. And did it come out of that election? Oh yeah, it
1: absolutely came from there because I was like, we, this woman cannot get elected if people are not able to write a sentence about her that does not say flawed. And I was just like, I do not understand because obviously every candidate is flawed in right. manifold ways. You know what I mean? Like she's—I actually think Hillary is a huge Hillary fan. So much less flawed than most of the candidates. I was like, yeah, I, I was always I was like, let's talk about Bernie's flaws. I can go right. on about <laughs> those for a good, you know, couple of days if you want to hear some of those flaws. But like, I—I I was like, we are actually collectively having a problem right now because this word will affect what people are able to do. Like, there are those of us that like Hillary and understand her in the world, but if you say, you know, it's just like propaganda. You say someone's flawed enough, and if you're the New York Times, and you say it 187 times, and then the people on the right are saying, lock her up, you know, and then, which is also what happens, you know, that somehow women, because of this flawed thing, are so silent from openly voicing our support. So I was very vocal and so many people wrote behind the scenes and thanked me and were like, you know, I can't be vocal about this and I was like, God, this is such fucking bullshit. I can't even deal with what's happening here. And so it it absolutely came out of the word flawed and how <sighs> Hillary's candidacy was affected by every fucking pundit saying Flaw, half of whom later were revealed to be the pervious worst sex offenders you know going and they were like don't even get me started on like wow that Matt Lauer you know interview where he was like leaning over and giving Trump (laughs) a blow job and like questioning Hillary about her emails you know, right. as if he didn't fucking know better. You know what no, I it's mean? Yeah, it's infuriating. It's, like, it's like, you know better, you dickhead.
0: You have your own story. It's, I mean, I love that Like this, I think it inspired a lot of women to gain clarity about the way that we view public figures. We're still talking about it when um, Kamala Harris had to get up and speak in her tone and yes. I, I'm speaking. But you have your own story, which you share in the preface, the one about being called a yappy bitch, would you, oh, yeah. would you share that with people
1: who are unfamiliar with that story? Yes, this was so funny. It actually wasn't funny at the time, but- um, No, of course not. It was
0: <laughs> <terms of> horrifying. <laughs> it is horrifying. I mean, by the way,
1: like, so, so we were sitting in a park and it was me, my good friend who is white and whose child is biracial, half, you know, black and white, and my child I'm half black and white and my child is um, also his sperm donor dad is Colombian and Mexican. My child actually looks blonde and white. (laughs) So, you know, and Jersey City is really filled with kids like that. Like It's very confusing. It's not confusing. It's good. But you're just like, you really don't want to assume whose parent belongs to whose kid. You'd just be wrong every single time so and I grew up in that situation because I just I came out looking very very white and when I was younger actually one time I was sitting in my mother's lap and a woman leaned over it and said where is your mommy and I looked at her like she's a fucking idiot which she was and I said right here but you know it it was very painful to my mother I think how different that particular thing which happened all the time because um, you don't want people constantly telling you your child is not your child mm-hmm. and um, so so we were talking about um, skin color because the dad actually started this conversation he was white and his daughter is white and he started saying like you know I don't put my daughter's race because you know if you put their race, like, that's what causes racism. And I was like, yeah, that that's not what causes racism. Racism <laughs> and that doesn't do anything? There's a white guy who didn't put the race? Like, right, you right. didn't, you just literally did nothing except make yourself feel better, and I don't even know why you would feel better about that. Like, you know, race actually means a lot, and I'm very proud of my race, you know, despite looking completely white. And you're white. And so you know what I knew you should like cop to being white and that's fine. Right, totally. It's, it's all fine. And and then he got really peeved at me. Um, and then we and then he was he started or he made some analogy involving like suntan lotion and I was like, you know, mm-hmm. actually like whether and I was like, you know, black people actually the darker your skin the more you have to be careful about burning because you won't necessarily see the burn. As it happened, you know, like actually, black skin is very sensitive and, you know, dermatologists don't know that. And that's a big problem. Done. And then he goes like, you're kind of yappy, aren't you? Like, you're sort of a yappy bitch. And, and I was like, my and, and the problem with that, like, it was sort of doubly horrifying because it wasn't just that he called me a yappy bitch, which is horrible. It is horrible. It's not nice and it's horrible. But also he was filled with rage. And I know this dad Mm. like I actually like this dad. This dad has anger issues. I'm used to men with anger issues. I just sort of ignore like ignore it. But like you really could tell like in a different world like that like he wanted to punch me I don't think he consciously wanted to punch me this is actually kind of you know frightening and I was just like god I hope he doesn't punch me because then I'm gonna have to call the police and we're both parents at the same school and that's gonna be fucking weird and so um and then he left in like a huff and that happened actually the day I sold this book i had just sold oh this my book that day. yeah and i was like justice it, is served Justice angry is served, the, park. the angry man <laughs> of the park and and what was sad also is that like what's frustrating is it you know part of the reason i was so numb about it is that it's like it's like of course that's not the same conversation i've had that conversation since i opened my mouth at you know starting at age seven or eight, you know, being outspoken, you know, whatever, like being, you know, don't argue like, uh, you know, you're, you're very zealous in your arguments. And it's like, okay, like, yeah, I am. Like, what do you want me to be? Like a retiring flower? I'm not. But, you know, it's, there is sort of this, you know, constant refrain of shut up. And I think what people really, were able to work through in the books is how much, even if it wasn't someone saying, you yappy bitch, shut up, or you are shrill, shut up, that a lot of what the world was saying, you know, um, uh, my, my, the writer Beth Nguyen wrote about how she was constantly called small. Um, and that like actually, you know, she'd been raised in the Midwest and actually what people were saying to her was, you're Vietnamese, you're strange, not you're small. That's really what it meant and you know, the essay launches with someone picking her up in the hall and swinging her around because she's so small, they think that'll be interesting and whatever, they thought it'd be fun. And a lot of the essays are just about people, you know, telling you like, um, uh, the first essay, she wrote an essay about always being called two and always being called two, too much this, too much that, too much, you know, you're too, Mm -hmm. and that really what people were saying is disappears, disappear a little bit more, matter a little bit less put yourself out there as someone who has a right to
0: speak a Yeah, like you're taking up too much space you're taking
1: up too much space and I uh, and and that that was conveyed in all sorts of ways to people whether it was about their height or about how many questions they asked or about their voice or about their breasts or about their you know it, it went the gamut from like your body to your mind to your voice like just mm-hmm. any but fundamentally the message was shut up, you know, and which makes it sound actually like now I'm always, it's not a depressing book, it's actually a very funny book, but you know, a lot of the essayists are very humorous, but you know, um, I think the idea of how much words affect the world was what the book was about. It's like, it's not that Hillary Clinton's feelings got hurt, it's that she did not get elected president because she was consistently called flawed you know alongside a candidate who truly is the most flawed person I mean flawed is he's like a rapist, That's pretty flawed right. you know who was consistently called like a maverick who the fuck even remembers what he was called but no one ever said you know the deeply flawed Donald Trump you know Nazi apologist and and that mattered that actually turned out to have you know tremendous effects for our country and on actual people's lives
0: So because people parrot them.
1: Yeah. People parrot them.
0: People People parrot the news. I mean, I would talk to people about the election and they would repeat sentences that I had heard on the news. And it bothered me so much because I was like, that's not your opinion and it's not your idea. So if you're going to vote for that candidate, tell me why you like them and not give me one of the reasons that Fox News is telling me. Right. Uh, You know, it's like, so you're absolutely the words that we choose matter. And if people are constantly using negative words or words with negative connotations about women, subliminally, yeah. we start thinking of women as having these characteristics, Oh, which is like I told you when I read the book, it really just showed me the brick wall that we've built around characteristics that smart, intelligent women Recognized as being positive, but the rest of the world, the the patriarchy, can see as being very threatening. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you know, and, and it's funny. Like, what was interesting? I actually the the person who read. The, I mean, I'm sure lots of people brought it to their book clubs, but I was. Fascinated by my cousin, who is much older and actually a Trump supporter. He brought it to his book club and his book club, you know, his all male book club, they read it Mm -hmm. and discussed it. And like, thought about it. I mean, this must be a very, like, enlightened group of Trump supporters. I, know I would pay like, to I mean, be in that room, man. Exactly. Oh my God. Exactly. But like, you know, and he said, like, he was like, well, this was like a really enlightening, interesting book for a lot of us. And like, I actually thought that that also spoke just to the power of stories because, yes. you know, not like, don't get me wrong. Like, I write opinion pieces all the time and they're fine but when people write about how something affected them throughout their lives and how you know something consistently happened to them and then you have a group of people talking about it and and they can see like you know you you can actually see like okay wait no somebody got fired somebody had to leave law school like somebody else lost their job, you know, somebody lost the debate competition. Like these these are tangible losses that, and I think every essay had a pretty tangible loss that happened from the word, you know, like in, I mean, my essay maybe was like a slight, you know, because I wrote about just the misunderstanding of the word soft dig. And, you know, how it, so I was more writing about like the issues in women's bodies and how something that was once a compliment became very negative. But you know, I think with every other essay, people like had to withdraw from some major institutional thing because of what happened. And I think because these stories were all located there that that's like a revelation for other people but like it was kind of a revelation for me where i was like my boss that my boss who would actively say like you shouldn't talk you shouldn't suggest these things like when he fired me i lost a matching 401k at a job in a big corporation and it was way before you could complain and I even think now I don't know how it would help if I had complained, where I would be like, oh, he rubs my shoulders. like, he feels me up sometimes, but no, not that much, but like... His complaint was that you just used your voice too much? No, his, no, like, it's actually very weird. His complaint was when I did my job, you know, our job then was actually reprinting classics. It's funny, I've like weirdly been in that world for a long time and I can talk about mm-hmm. this boss. This boss is actually deceased and died of cancer in a terrible way and a lot of people were sad about it, but I was like, oh, mm-hmm. he's pretty terrible boss to me, but whatever. Um, and you know, at one point he used to just say these astonishing things, but every, all the people in publishing said them, say black books don't sell, black people don't read, There are no good books by women, and one time he said, "You know, ah, there's really no, you know, no really good women writers." And so I, as the helpful innocent, typed up a list for him of some great for you of some great books we reprint. (laughs) We could reprint, like truly believing, like you know, that he might. Be fucking interested in, you know, reprinting a lot of these great books that were out of print and that I think would have sold for the Book of the Month Club. And instead, he went to my more direct supervisor, screamed at her, and truly said the words he said to her: were, you are not controlling her, not controlling her enough. You need to control her more." And, oh my god, Lizzie. Yeah. And so for doing my job, it's not like I stood up and said like you're making me uncomfortable. Like <laughs> I should have. Which I should have, but I that, oh my god. that's not what I did. I got yelled at for doing my job, not for saying, Get your hands off my shoulder. Because
0: you challenged him and it's the same story with the guy in the park. Yes. Um there's no you know, there's not a specific essay in your book that speaks about uh, challenge as a word in itself but all of them are related to the fact that they either felt challenged by this word or were challenging someone else by their behavior around this word oh yeah and it was just like all of it was this very imbued power structure to me it was like patriarchy 101 of people not wanting to relinquish power to women period end of sentence you know
1: absolutely absolutely and also sort of gaslighting you about it yeah totally and, and in a way it was actually very lucky for me i mean i don't think my boss knew this at the time but who the fuck gives a shit but you know my mother was black and an english professor and had a phd in english from columbia and so when he said things like black people don't really read and black people don't write good books it's not even like i didn't even feel like you're wrong i felt like oh like you poor guy like you don't know about all these great books <laughs> like share them with you and so you know i think i think like what i hoped or what i what i liked about pretty bitches is that it provided a lot of those stories that like you don't get to tell like it, i mean what's sad is a lot of the stories I mean, I'm more of a bridge burner than some other people, but like a lot of the stories we got to tell were because we had left those jobs, or left those men, or left right. those fields. So it was like, listen, this is a safe story to tell because I'm never gonna fucking work for Time Warner again. You know, Or it's like probably now I could, but like, you know, it was like, this doesn't matter because they wouldn't rehire me anyway. And I don't care about this man because whatever currency I had in that field as doing this was lost. It was lost. And, like, in a way, that's what's sort of ironic but a good irony about coming back in as, like, a literary blogger. Because after all those years of working publicly and being silent. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to fucking... All of us were like, we're just going to say what we want to say. And I guess maybe... I mean, I don't know. You can be cynical about it. I want to say that it was because the publishing industry was willing to hear. What it was is that the blog got a lot of traffic. And they wanted to, like, get in on that. Of course. (laughs) Of course. You know, but there was finally a way in which, like, the Internet, obviously, what we know now... Is It is certainly um, not a democracy, is not necessarily helpful in allowing people to speak. But also, many times and in many ways, it actually really is. And so I think part of the reason I could publish this book is because of me, too. You know, I think yeah. fi- finally after Hillary and after these really these hashtags that release these Currents of stories, you know, and this is after Larry Nassar, it was, it was just after these like massive revelations of mass silencing, and I think people were ready to hear things in a way they hadn't been before.
0: I just want to honor the fact that the book is, is unique, even though you have your own highly justified opinions of certain words you instead asked 27 different women of unique races backgrounds sexual orientations educations to weigh in and i think the- that's what gives the the book its power is because it's not single-minded and it's coming from it's a it's women's experiences across the board of those diversifications i'm just yeah. curious like from your own essay you have zap but if there's, if there was one word that someone else wrote about that really resonated with you? You know,
1: the, the essay, there were quite a few essays that really resonated me, but, um, I would say, I mean, definitely two, which I just, uh, that Adora's essay. And then, you know,
0: what was her word again? Her word was
1: two. Oh, two, right. Okay. Yes. And then professional, also really mm. resonated with me you know that professional was really meant to be like you are not enough like a you know white man and yeah. you know you, you need to seem more like a white man and the the one that also really resonated with me was jillian medoff essay about mature because what was fascinating about that essay is how a word that actually is so is a compliment usually or considered a compliment that in her life it was used as a weapon, you know, when she was younger and men said, ooh, you're really mature, they just meant like, you know, in a sleazy way, and now she's older, and when someone says, you know, you're kind of mature, they mean like, you know, you're getting too old for the field, and we'd really like to have a young guy in your job, and you don't matter, and, um... And all that, that ageism, all like that, wrapped up in a single word. Yeah, and the fact that a word could actually be weaponized against you as a teenager and as a middle-aged woman and in between was like amazing to me. I was like, you know, and that it was like, mm, you know, in the middle, it's like be mature, you know, be mature about this disgusting joke we're saying about you and your boobs. You know, you know, just be mature about this, food. And it's, I loved that essay because I just felt like um, a lot of these essays were about the lifespan of a word in someone's life. Yeah. And that that also mattered. You know, if someone called you shrill once, you'd be like, huh. Oh. You know, but but when you when you can see how this is a word that has haunted someone, and continues to haunt them. I mean, I teach at NYU and my students are younger. And so sometimes they'll say something is abusive or they don't, you know, want to do something. I remember on my like, Facebook feed a playwright complaining about the group of students who didn't want to do a play where the word Negro was used. And I was like, you know what? Like, there is a very new jerk reaction. Our generation has to that kind of thing where we're like yeah. you know literature is painful we have to tell these truths and then sometimes you know when I listen to my students I'm kind of like I really do feel whether you agree or not that there is something valuable to thinking about like well like we only have so much time on this earth we only have so much so many plays to put on in our youth you know what why not choose a play where we don't it has to say Negro, 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 which like is to that generation. I mean, that's what my grandmother said just as the word for black. But, you know, there is a reason that black power took away Negro and said, we're going to say black. You know, we're going to say black is beautiful, black and I'm proud. You know, we're going to take away this word that white people use for us. And I was just like, I don't know that I agree, but I want to see the worth in that point of view because mm, I want like to, yeah, I want to see the worth in saying no. This actually fucking matters if I spend four months of my life on this particular play.
0: I love this idea of of exploring the history of a word, and not just with the the history that comes with our story and that word, but with a generation story of that word and trying to explore the implications of it. Obviously there's certain pressure words that come up or, or words that constantly are are in theme on the podcast. And I wondered if I could just get your thoughts off the top of your head around one that comes up constantly, because I think it's a very hot button word and the word is shame.
1: Oh yeah. Um, well, what context are people using it in? Like, are they using it in like, that's a shame? or like shame?
0: No, I think the, the shame, comes. it's a, sort of an active like shaming is in like the shame that we hold for being yeah. single at a certain age that we haven't accomplished some sort of life goal that we quote unquote should have achieved at a certain place or the shaming that we receive from well-meaning people who love us that say things like demean why we might not have found a person yet It's right. a, that, as if it's our fault. Yeah. I think there's a lot of um, internal shaming about being single and I think there's a lot of societal shaming about being single as well. Yeah. Wanted to know, you know, two seconds of your thoughts around that word.
1: Well, I think, Uh, Gwyneth McNichol actually wrote about it you know it's so funny
0: wait I'll just interrupt you really quickly so one of my very earliest episodes episode six I talked to my friend Jackie who recommended that book to me because she had just turned 40 and we talked about uh, the themes that come up in her book no one tells you this Um, So that obviously like her, I haven't had her on the podcast yet, but all of what she talks about around singleness really resonated with me and with Jackie and I think a lot of our listeners too. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, there is a shaming. And what the shaming does is makes you feel like <laughs> like, because let's say it could be a choice could not be a choice like you could actually really be looking for a partner or not looking for a partner but either way like it doesn't mean your life is fake it doesn't mean your life hasn't started yet like it doesn't mean your life is meaningless or lacking you know and I think that this what that shame does is make you feel like your life is in abeyance your life is not complete you know and it's like listen there's lots of fucking ways in which our lives are not complete that we might want like we might want to own a house Uh, we might want to take more vacations like we might wish we had gone to school for four more years you know we might want a child we want to move to a different city like there's all sorts of like life changing shit that you're not doing at any given time in your life That like you don't nobody's going to make you feel ashamed of like well like until she you know uh composes that symphony it's all everything's on hold um a great part of the essay is when the author glennis mcnichol talks about how there's no narrative for being single you know Mm. mary tyler moore was kind of the last of the happy single girls and, and you still always had the sense that this was, you know, not the end of her life. Like for instance, like now, now I'm engaged and when I got engaged it was so strange. All of a sudden my future husband's kids and his ex-wife all assumed I would be moving in right away which is crazy, as if I had, like, no life, you know what I mean? And I I don't think it was conscious, but there's a way we do that where it's like, well, of course, your real life can start now. ooh, Um, And that persists even today, and it's so strange because it's like, you know, it would be so... You would be such an unhappy person if you know you didn't have a million things to bind you to the life you had now, and it actually does make a person. You know, it's why your early twenties can be so hard. You you haven't bound yourself anywhere yet usually, and you know you're supposed to be experimenting, which is fun, but it's also you know can make you real a little bit and um and so i think that's where the shame comes from i mean i don't think it's like a conspiracy but the <laughs> idea <laughs> the idea is to keep you from feeling that you can have a fulfilling life um while you're <laughs> while you're not partnered and so i wonder if the shame on some level isn't really about being single it's a about, it's like the shame functions to keep you from building up powerful bonds where you are right now and maybe accomplishing things now that you want to accomplish. So it's like, you know, it's like the culture shames you because that keeps you powerless. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To keep people small. Yeah. That's a really, really intense idea Yeah, that shame is inherently baked into our society as a vehicle as a tool yeah to keep women smaller that's like a lot that's a lot to process it is because uh, it's like, really intense
1: it's not like having uh, you know I'm always joking with my fiance that like if I wanted to just you know pick up my skirts and move right away and change everything that would be terrible that would be like an indicator that I had a terrible life and like had not integrated. Right, you think that would
0: be like for him.
1: Yes, because it's like I'm 48, you know, so it's like, if oh, thank God, a real life, you know, that's like a bad indicator. <laughs> but, and by the way, I think they do this to men too, you know, that like I when I remember when I was younger and there was a little while like different dating sites had different vibes and I remember J-Date it was a lot of men who really, really wanted to marry. You know what I mean? Like Mm. they were looking for a wife right away. And I was like, you know, all of these men, they really just want somebody on the weekend to like tell them what to do. And to be like, you know, (gasps) use this, like we're putting up this. Like,
0: (laughs) I I don't know, I'm like, that's horrifying to hear. They need a replacement mother is what it sounds like you're saying.
1: Kind of, you know, just, and, and, you know, because having to tell yourself what to do is kind of terrifying. Uh, I mean, for me, it's not terrifying, but I think for a lot of people, it's like, it's actually something you have to practice. It doesn't come, (laughs) filling your time is not like a natural thing. You have to really figure out what you like to do. But I remember um, once, I guess I was, I was moving, I think I was moving from Baltimore back to Jersey City, and I was selling all of my furniture, and at the time... What the hell did oh, Shabby chic was very big? And for some random reason, I had all of these things that fit into the shabby chic rubric, <laughs> not on purpose, but so I put a Craigslist ad that said like shabby chic stuff. And so my apartment that Saturday got like mobbed with people coming. But what was hilarious to me is it was all women with their husbands kind of in tow to like carry the stuff. And the husband seemed like you know it was sort of like okay I guess this is what they got. What else would
0: I be doing? This what else weekend? would I be yeah.
1: doing? Or sort of like this is my job, you know? Like and 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 there was something sort of sweet about it, but also something sort of weird about it. Yeah, it was just weird. <laughs> I was just like okay, like is this what marriage? Is? And, and you know I do think honestly, like I just bought a new bureau, and I'm like. Because since I just threw my back out, I'm like, who the fuck is going to help me carry this bureau? Like, I, <laughs> you know, but also like, you know, I, I have a very strong family system here. There's like, you know, two or three single moms and some not single moms and even some dads. And we share a lot of child care. When I was pregnant, I had help from so many people that... I was like, God, how the fuck do people with just one spouse do it? It must be impossible. <laughs> I just like have the opposite yeah. reaction
0: that people think can- you're gonna have. And I can see, I mean, I can see how a family, when you said you were talking about men on J-Date, they were looking for a wife. What I thought you were leaning towards was the stress from Jewish mothers or Jewish families for their children to get married. I thought you were going to talk more about that, particularly culturally. But I understand how a family could want so badly for their children to have that kind of, structure in case something like that happens yeah. that that fierce desire turns into blame or shame like how come you're not married yet is actually a fear of i'm worried about you my mom said this the other day my my dad had eye surgery and she needs to put drops in his eyes every day. Yeah. And he can only be upright when he is eating or using the restroom. Ah, So, you know, he needs someone to care for him while he's healing. And my mom thought, told me immediately, all I can think about is what if this was you, you'd be all alone and you have no one to help take care of you in this situation you know what she's not wrong (laughs) well no 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 though you know what she is wrong I can
1: tell you a happy story it's not that happy a story but I can tell you a happy story which is that so my I haven't I had an aunt Cheryl Mm. so she was single she was single really ever since her late 20s and pretty much what she had was um, when she got cancer you know, my mother always, always, Sherry's alone, Sherry's alone. When she got cancer, all of her friends from all over the world flew in to care for her. Her her two best friends, Farrell and Presert, they bought the apartment next door to be oh with God. her. And all of her other friends came in in shifts, including me, including my other aunt, including just a million million relatives. Um, And she, every time she did chemo, had someone with her. Her her friend Keld also moved to Seattle to be with her. Um, And when she died, she actually had, there were funerals for her in four countries, so there was a funeral for her in Hawaii where she had lived for a long time as a flight attendant. There was one in Seattle where she lived then. There was one in the Welsh town that one of her best friends was from where she knew everybody. And there was one in Australia where she had many friends. So. She, you know, and my mother, just, my mother just died, and she. My mother also had people all over the world who adored her, but you know, she didn't have four funerals. Um, these are funerals, by the way, held after Sherry was dead. She had like, say, that's... yeah, she had no part. It's not like she planned four funerals, but you know, the right. entire town in Wales had known her for twenty years that's and That's so beautiful.
0: Her. There, they were four celebrations of life, is yes, what they were.
1: Yes, they were, and so. She never lacked anybody to help her and take care of her. And I think the the hard thing about marriage for people, for people who are married, I mean, is that like it it can encourage you to give up. Like, you know, not being married means you miss out on that profound bond, right, of partnership. Mm but also it can make people sort of neglect other bonds. Um, 100%, yep. You know, and my friends, my married friends and I, we really, really, really very strongly maintain our friendships. You know, my friends that are wives or husbands, you know, we do. And I, I think it just gives you a healthier marriage, a healthier life, Great. you know, like you don't, you don't wanna be, all stuck on one person. We sort of need that variety, um, I think. And so I guess the shaming, the shaming is just a way to take away people's happiness. That's my. Those are my thoughts on shame, yeah, <laughs> that it's, <yeah>. well, that <laughs> that it's great. there to Fantastic. prevent people from being happy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, I'm just curious, and the answer can be no, but I'm curious if there's a word in your brain being a wordsmith that you think is is really full of tension in single culture or affiliated with single women huh
1: you know what's funny well this is a word this is a word people have called me, and I don't know if it's affiliated with single culture but also I don't think I've ever heard a married person described this way, but I feel like intense is one. Ooh. Like, she's very intense. And the, and the sort of, you know, the implication is that, like, as an intense person, you are too much for normal people. you know, like you, you you know, you would like, like you're operating at like a high voltage all the time. And it's weird. Like, I'm just trying to think, but I'm not saying people don't describe men as intense. They, they may well, maybe when they're sort of younger, but you don't usually, you know, so I would say like intense. And I think that would kind of fit in the constellation of ways you can say women are too much, like, you know, like too loud, too enthusiastic. Like a
0: lot to process. A lot to
1: process, like more, more than, you know, and sort of in an unpleasant way, like sort of somebody who couldn't just hang out on the couch and watch Netflix, just literally. Well,
0: and I'm thinking (laughs) back to my, the times when I, I have, I have used that word and I, I think it's, it's an interesting investigation, and I want to pay attention to when I use it going forward. But I think you're right. I think I only use the word intense uh, when I'm dealing with a very, and I hate this phrase as well, but like a sort of what we would call a high-maintenance uh, yeah. woman. Just like-, like a needy kind of over-the-top person that needs a lot of attention. I don't think I've ever used that in terms of a man, but I've definitely used it in terms towards women.
1: Well, I feel like when it comes out is, it's somebody who cares, if you're a woman, it's somebody who cares a lot about something and cares really, really deeply about something, which makes them intense, you know, whether or not it's like, you know, the magazine they run or the thing they love. It's a passion. It's a passion. So it's kind of instead of saying someone's passionate, it's like being like, hmm, you should dial that down. It's a negative
0: version of that. Yeah, it's a negative judgment.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's like the older and older you get, at least like you better be passionate about something. You know, it's (laughs) it's actually a really, passion is a really important trait in like happy life. So calling someone, you know, intense, is a way of kind of devaluing that sort of passion. And, you know, maybe women don't, you know, get as much room to be the kind of people who really, really are at home on a big stage. You know, like, Mm. you have to almost become, you know, you have to become like living camp and kitsch to be able to do that. Like, you just have to become Cher. And I'm sure, you know, Cher finds it fabulous to be Cher, but some... Some people need a big stage that are not necessarily entertainers, you know.
0: I wonder if there's a way to like reclaim that word or reframe that word. Yeah. As as a positive thing. Yeah. One of my questions for you sort of nice segue. The thing about the thing about your book is that these are words that are in our our language and our culture that are used again as tools and vehicles to diminish women, to contain women, to make them smaller. But going in the opposite direction, I wanted to ask you what your favorite positive word is that helps or empowers women.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um God, this is such a weird. I'm just gonna answer, which is what I have always told. Go with your gut. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you. the word that actually came up in my brain, but I feel like wicked. Wicked is really, but not wicked in the like New England way. Not like okay. that's wicked cool, but you know, like having a wicked sense of humor or just being wicked in general. Like it sort of denotes clever. clever. Yeah, it's like, but like this earthy funny way of being clever, like, you know, not, not necessarily just a cerebral type of cleverness. Like
0: a little naughty.
1: Yeah. And like a cleverness that's like wicked, like, you know, you're like rooted in the world and you have a little bit of a sense of humor about it and you're a little naughty. And so, yeah, I think, I think wicked is always a nice thing to be called. Not in the New England way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, delightful but, you know, is and, nice too. I call people delightful a lot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lovely. But you know what's fun is that as I'm listening to you talk about it, I'm smiling because the idea of it is delightful and it, it has like a little sprinkling of something else that a uh, je ne sais quoi if you, can, yeah. you know it's not really like oh she's a lovely person she's a nice person she's a delightful person but when you say she's a wicked person there's yes. a there's a glint that comes into the eye yes. it's fun yeah you know?
1: yeah it's 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 totally fun it's like brownies That's- and you don't know whether or not they're pot brownies
0: <laughs> so, Those are good though too. Also yeah. I love a wicked hot chocolate. Yeah. Like a little spicy. Yes, you know, a exactly. little Mexican a cinnamon, Mex- if you will.
1: One of my favorite kinds of hot chocolates is a Mexican hot chocolate. But yes, absolutely. Like wicked. I think that that's a nice one we should probably reclaim. And I'm into it. I'm yeah. into
0: it what's your number one takeaway that you want your reader to leave with like when you wrote this when you envisioned this work when you pulled in this fabulous group of women what was the gift that you were hoping you were leaving the reader with
1: well you know at first i was really just i was interested like linguistically because you know for all the reasons i talked about in my essay about softig, I was just like it's just so weird this this word has had like such a hold over my life so why you know Mm. and and this is nice everybody will be able to spend you know 14 days figuring you know why this word has had such an effect on them why it's taking up so much space what I didn't realize and what has been so rewarding about the book is I didn't realize that like it would provide such a relief, and also that so many of the essays, and this is, I think, depressing but also good that so many of the words are about keeping people smaller, you know, mm-hmm. keeping people, keeping women quieter, smaller, you know. And once you kind of get that, you're like, great, well, fuck you. And then you, and then you just don't have to do yeah. it anymore. And so. I think that was like the gift of the book for me, of seeing that there, I mean, it's this like worldwide, you know, uh, effort by women and by men, you know, to make women sort of shut up and sit down. And it was nice to see that it was also just happening you know, in sentences, and that you could look at those sentences and you could say, oh, like, this is somebody that's going to fuck me over, and this is wrong, Mm. and I don't have to listen to it. I don't have to entertain it at all. Like, if someone calls me loud, I mean, whatever, I am actually kind of loud, but if, if someone calls me loud, you know, that's actually just an indicator that they would feel more comfortable if they had the upper hand in the relationship. And I'm, and so once you know that, you're sort of like, well, yeah, fuck you then. That's not how I'm more comfortable. And, you know, it can... I, I found that about the book. I just found it very freeing. And I found it freeing to realize, and I think maybe we all did, how much space some of these things were taking up in our brains like you know that I wasn't alone in that and having felt really shamed by a word or restricted by a word or you know having a word make me feel bad for like a week you know that that those were things that was something that we shared um and you know that then also I think made me feel less alone. And, you know, loneliness, maybe that's also something to take away from it. Like, you know, being alone, not realizing people share your life is something single women get shamed for all the time, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean, I have this, like, tribe of single mom friends and I really don't know how I would feel without them. I mean, I think... I would have probably sought out something like that, but like, let's say I didn't live in a place where that existed or where I could do that, like that would be pretty hard. So having the shared experience of having been shamed by a word um, and then being able to throw off the shame, that was like very powerful for me. Um, I don't think I've really had that many transformational experiences in my life (laughs) i'm not one of those people that's like constantly having them so you know some people it's like every day there's a transformational experience but like this book was a little bit for me i felt a little bit stronger and a little bit more proud of myself after reading the essays in the book um and a little bit less alone which was you know a nice surprise and certainly worth more than the advance. <laughs>
0: so, I will Smart. say that that was my experience reading it. If that helps complete the journey for you, oh, um, I think there's a lot of resonance that can happen. I mean, I underlined a lot of passages. You just have a moment where you're like, Oh my gosh. Yes. I felt that too. And I haven't been able to actually pinpoint it. And I think there is so much power and this really comes back to like my intention with the podcast but there's power in sharing our stories yeah because the more of us that say oh my gosh i've experienced that too a i'm not alone but b the more of us that can say this is not okay and vocalize that the more likely it is to create a stronger future where that, that experience doesn't exist.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Eventually, you just hopefully get rid of the experience and then yeah. the younger generation is like, Myra, you are always complaining about that. And you're like, because it happened.
0: <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I'm like I can't speak more highly about this book. I, it's so unique and it's so different and it's so fun for um, intellectuals. I, I will say specifically, intellectual women who operate at a, a high level of, of, of wordsmithing. Mm-hmm. What, I don't know how else to describe that quality. But but women who um, uh, who use words, who believe in the power of words, who write, who read a lot. Um, I I, th- I think there's 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 such community in your book, and I think it's such a cool thing that you've done in gathering. Instead of just writing the book yourself, gathering and the tribe and the women and collectively standing there and saying, "Like these things mattered to us, and they have wounded us," and whether you have experienced that or not, it's not okay. Yeah. So thank you for thank you for writing this book.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. It was fun. It was good. <laughs>
0: Guys, if you are interested in Lizzie's book, I will be sure to hyperlink um, a place where you can buy it on Amazon and a independent bookstore owned by women. If you can, you can choose if you want it tomorrow, or you can choose if you would like to support local independent bookstores run by women as well. And if you liked this episode, if you have a friend who is a writer or vibes on words or or understands the, the wounding power of words, please consider sharing this episode with them. We would love to have more listeners come to the podcast, and the more you can share it, the more we build a strong tribe of women willing to stand up and say no, huzzah. <laughs> uh, as always, we are having an awesome conversation over on Instagram at hashtag single pod. We hope you will join us and uh, we will bring you another episode in two weeks with another badass independent feminist female. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. We'll catch you next time.